This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit www.librivox.org. Section 3 On a Chinese Screen by W. Somerset Maugham. The Cabinet Minister. He received me in a long room looking on to a sandy garden. The roses withered on the stunted bushes and the great old trees flagged forlorn. He sat me down on a square stool at a square table and took his seat in front of me. A servant brought cups of flowered tea and American cigarettes. He was a thin man of middle height with thin elegant hands and through his gold-rimmed spectacles he looked at me with large, dark, and melancholy eyes. He had the look of a student or of a dreamer. His smile was very sweet. He wore a brown silk gown and over it a short black silk jacket and on his head a billy cock hat. Is it not strange, he said with his charming smile, that we Chinese wear this gown because 300 years ago the Manchus were horsemen? Not so strange, I retorted, as that because the English won the Battle of Waterloo, your Excellency should wear a bowler. Do you think that is why I wear it? I could easily prove it, since I was afraid that his exquisite courtesy would prevent him from asking me how. I hastened in a few well-chosen words to do so. He took off his hat and looked at it with the shadow of a sigh. I glanced around the room. It had a green Brussels carpet with great flowers on it, and round the walls were highly carved blackwood chairs. From a picture rail hung scrolls on which were writings by the great masters of the past, and to vary these, in bright gold frames, were oil paintings, which in the 90s might very well have been exhibited at the Royal Academy. The minister did his work at an American roll-top desk. He talked to me with melancholy of the state of China. A civilization, the oldest the world had known, was now being ruthlessly swept away. The students who came back from Europe and from America were tearing down what endless generations had built up, and they were placing nothing in its stead. They had no love of their country, no religion, no reverence. The temples deserted by worshiper and priest, were falling into decay, and presently their beauty would be nothing but a memory. But then, with a gesture of his thin aristocratic hands, he put the subject aside. He asked me whether I would care to see some of his works of art. We walked around the room, and he showed me priceless porcelains, bronzeless, and tang figures. There was a horse from a grave in Honan, which had the grace and exquisite modeling of a Greek work. On a large table by the side of his desk was a number of rolls. He chose one, and holding it at the top, gave it to me to unroll. It was a picture of some early dynasty, of mountains seen through fleecy clouds, and with smiling eyes he watched my pleasure as I looked. The picture was set aside, and he showed me another, and yet another. Presently I protested that I could not allow a busy man to waste his time on me, 
but he would not let me go. He brought out picture after picture. He was a connoisseur. He was pleased to tell me the schools and periods to which they belonged and neat anecdotes about their painters. I wish I could think it was possible for you to appreciate my greatest treasures, he said, pointing to the scrolls that adorned his walls. Here you have examples of the most perfect calligraphies of China. Do you like them better than paintings, I ask? Infinitely. Their beauty is more chaste. There is nothing meretricious in them, but I can quite understand that a European would have difficulty in appreciating so severe and so delicate an art. Your taste in Chinese things tends a little to the grotesque, I think. He produced books of paintings and I turned their leaves, beautiful things. With the dramatic instinct of the collector, he kept to the last the book by which he set most store. It was a series of little pictures of birds and flowers, roughly done with a few strokes, but with such a power of suggestion, with so great a feeling for nature, and with such a playful tenderness that it took your breath away. There were springs of plum blossom that held in their dainty freshness all the magic of spring. There were sparrows in whose ruffled plumage were the beat and the tremor of life. It was the work of a great artist. Would these American students ever produce anything like this, he asked with a rueful smile. But to me, the most charming part of it was that I knew all the time he was a rascal corrupt, inefficient, and unscrupulous. He let nothing stand in his way. He was a master of the squeeze. He had acquired a large fortune by the most abominable of methods. He, would dis he was dishonest, cruel, vindictive, and venal. He had certainly had a share in reducing China to the desperate plight which he so sincerely lamented. But when he held in his hand a little vase of the color of lapis lazuli, his fingers seemed to curl about it with a charming tenderness. His melancholy eyes caressed it as they looked, and his lips were slightly parted, as though with a sigh of desire. Dinner Parties 1. Legation Quarter The Swiss director of the bank Sino Argentine was announced. He came with a large handsome wife who displayed her opulent charms so generously that it made you a little nervous. It was said that she had been a coquette and an English maiden lady in solemn pink satin and beads who had come early, greeted her with a thin and frigid smile. The minister of Guatemala and the Chargé d'Affaires of Montenegro entered together. The Chargé d'Affaires was in a state of extreme agitation. He had not understood that it was an official function. He thought he had been asked to dine en petit comité, and he had not put on his orders. And there was the minister of Guatemala blazing with stars. What in heaven's name was to be done? The emotion caused by what for a moment seemed almost a diplomatic incident was diverted by the parents of two Chinese servants in long silk robes and four-sided hats with cocktails 
and jacuzzi. Then a Russian princess sailed in. She had white hair and a black silk dress up to her neck. She looked like the heroine of a play by Victorienne Sardou, who had outlived the melodramatic fury of her youth and now did crochet. She was infinitely bored when you spoke to her of Tolstoy or Chekhov, but grew animated when she talked of Jack London. She put a question to the maiden lady, which the maiden lady, though no longer young, had no answer for. Why, she asked, do you English write such silly books about Russia? But then the first secretary of the British legation appeared. He gave his entrance the significance of an event. He was very tall, baldish but elegant, and he was beautifully dressed. He looked with polite astonishment at the dazzling orders of the ministers of Guatemala, the chargé d'affaires of Montenegro, who flattered himself that he was the best-dressed man in the diplomatic body, but was not quite sure whether the first secretary of the British legation thought him so, fluttered up to him to ask his candid opinion of the frilled shirt he wore. The Englishman placed a gold-rimmed glass in his eye and looked at it for a moment gravely. Then he paid the other a devastating compliment. Everyone had come by now but the wife of the French military attaché. They said she was always late. Es insoportable, said the handsome wife of the Swiss banker. But at last, magnificently indifferent to the fact that she had kept everyone waiting for half an hour, she swam into the room. She was tall on her outrageously high heels, extremely thin, and she wore a dress that gave you the impression that she had nothing on at all. Her hair was bobbed and blonde, and she was boldly painted. She looked like a post-impressionist idea of patient Griselda. When she moved, the air was heavy with exotic odors. She gave the minister of Guatemala a jeweled, emaciated hand to kiss, with a few smiling words made the banker's wife feel passé, provincial, and portly, flung an improper jest at the English lady, whose embarrassment was mitigated by the knowledge that the wife of the French military attaché was très bien née, and drank three cocktails in rapid succession. Dinner was served. The conversation varied from a resonant, rolling French to a somewhat halting English. They talked of this minister who had just written from Bucharest or Lima, and that consular's wife who found it so dull in, in Christiania or so expensive in Washington. On the whole, it made little difference to them in what capital they found themselves, for they did precisely the same things in Constantinople, Bern, Stockholm, and Peking entrenched within their diplomatic privileges and supported by a lively sense of their social consequence. They dwelt in a world in which Copernicus had never existed. For to them, sun and stars circled obsequiously around this earth of ours, and they were its center. No one knew why the English lady was there, and the wife of the Swiss director said privately, that she was without doubt a German spy, but she was an authority on the country. 
She told you that the Chinese had such perfect manners, and you really should have known the Empress Dowager. She was a perfect darling. You knew very well that in Constantinople, she would have assured you that the Turks were such perfect gentlemen, and the Sultana Fatima was a perfect dear and spoke such wonderful French. Homeless, she was at home wherever her country had a diplomatic representative. The first secretary of the British legation thought the party rather mixed. He spoke French more like a Frenchman than any Frenchman who had ever lived. He was a man of taste, and he had a natural aptitude for being right. He only knew the right people and only read the right books. He admired none but the right music and cared for none but the right pictures. He bought his clothes at the right tailors and his shirts from the only possible haberdasher. You listened to him with stupefaction. Presently, you wished with all your heart that he would confess to a liking for something just a little vulgar. You would have felt more at your ease if only with bold idiosyncrasy he had claimed that the soul's awakening was a work of art or the rosary a masterpiece. But his taste was faultless. He was perfect, and you were half afraid that he knew it. For in repose, his face had the look of one who bears an intolerable burden. And then you discovered that he wrote verse libre, and you breathed again. Two, at a treaty port. There was about the party a splendor which had vanished from the dinner tables of England. The mahogany groaned with silver. In the middle of the showy damask cloth was a centerpiece of yellow silk, such as you were unwillingly constrained to buy in the bazaars of your prim youth. And on this was a massive epernier, tall silver vases in which were large chrysanthemums made it possible to catch only glimpses of the persons opposite you and tall silver candlesticks reared their proud heads two by two down the length of the table. Each course was served with its appropriate wine, sherry with the soup, and hock with the fish, and there were the two entrees, a white entree and a brown entree, which the careful housekeeper of the 90s felt were essential to a properly arranged dinner. Perhaps the conversation was less varied than the courses, for guest and host had seen one another nearly every day for an intolerable number of years, and each topic that arose was seized upon desperately, only to be exhausted and followed by a formidable silence. They talked of racing and golf and shooting. They would have thought it bad form to touch upon the abstract, and there were no politics for them to discuss. China bored them all. They did not want to speak of that. They only knew just so much about it as was necessary to their business, and they looked with distrust upon any man who studied Chinese language. Why should he, unless he were a missionary or a Chinese secretary to the legation? You could hire an interpreter for $25 a month, and it was well known that all those fellows who went in for Chinese grew queer in the head. They were all persons of consequence. There was number one at Hardeen's with his wife, 
and the manager of the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank with his wife, and the APC man and his wife, and the BAT man with his wife, and the BNS man with his wife. They wore their evening clothes a little uneasily, as though they wore them from a sense of duty to their country, rather than as a comfortable change from day dress. They had come to the party because they had nothing else in the world to do. But when the moment came that they could decently take their leave, they would go with a sigh of relief. They were bored to death with one another. Chapter 7, The Altar of Heaven. It stands open to the sky. Three round terraces of white marble, placed one above the other, which are reached by four marble staircases. And these face the four points of the compass. It represents the celestial sphere with its cardinal points. A great park surrounds it, and this again is surrounded by high walls. And hither, year after year, on the night of the winter solstice, for then heaven is reborn, generation after generation come the Son of Heaven solemnly to worship the original creator of his house. Escorted by princes and the great men of the realm, followed by his troops, the emperor, purified by fasting, proceed to the altar. And here awaited him princes and ministers and mandarins, each in his allotted place, musicians and the dancers of the sacred dance. In the scanty light of the great torches, the ceremonial robes were darkly splendid. And before the tablet on which were inscribed the words, Imperial Heaven, Supreme Emperor, he offered incense, jade, and silk, broth, and rice spirit. He knelt and knocked his forehead against the marble pavement nine times. And here at the very spot where the vice-regent of heaven and earth knelt down, Willard B. Untermeyer wrote his name in a fine, bold hand and the town and state he came from, Hastings, Nebraska. He sought to attach his fleeting personality to the recollection of that grandeur of which some dim rumor had reached him. He thought that so men would remember him when he was no more. He aimed in this crude way at immortality. But vain are the hopes of men, for no sooner had he sauntered down the steps than a Chinese caretaker who had been leaning against the balustrade, idly looking at the blue sky, came forward, spat neatly on the spot where Billard B. Untermeyer had written, and with his foot smeared his spittle over the name. In a moment, no trace remained that Willard B. Untermeyer had ever visited the place. End of section three.